0: I grew up, and today live, in a still small town outside of Austin, Texas. It's far enough away from the big city to be free of its headaches like traffic, and well, pretty much just traffic, but close enough to make the drive to a big city's amenities not inconvenient. There's no interstate or toll road going through, just the intersection of two state highways. A bypass, known locally just as the Loop, goes around the outskirts of town, forming a physical and mental boundary. Outside the Loop, there are miles of fields growing corn, sorghum, and most historically important, cotton. But we'll get to that later. Inside the town, one animal dominates the parks, a lot of ducks. So much so that the duck would become the school mascot, one of the only in the country. The town has grown since I was a kid, but it's not as unrecognizable as some small towns become when their populations explode. Perhaps that's because Taylor's growth could be better described as smoldering. The number of Talorians hasn't even doubled in the last 30 years. It has a Walmart and H-E-B, a Waterburger and a Dairy Queen. Most recently, even an Applebee's found its way through the miles of crops. But... I have only lived a fraction of my hometown's history. I had heard stories of its past, but I needed more. I needed to know its real history, not just what made it into the books. So I embarked on an epic journey into the past of this special town I call home. A town called Taylor, Texas. And I found more to it than anyone knew. It did have a tale that hadn't yet been told, at least all in one place. A tale of ducks and cotton. Chapter 1. The Founding of Taylor The founding of Taylor in 1876 happened either by chance or by fate. It's hard to tell which. First, let's review a few facts to set the scene. The Battle of the Alamo was fought 40 years prior. The Civil War had ended but 10 years ago. Texas is still mostly empty space. The University of Texas had yet to be established, but the Texas Agricultural and Mechanical College was opening its doors. You couldn't drive a car, but... You could take a train, which happens to be where Taylor's story begins.
1: My grandfather was a train conductor back in the late 1800s.
0: Knowing that Taylor was founded along a railroad, I decided to look for some first-hand sources on its creation. So I put out a call for anyone who had relatives that had been involved in the railroad industry around the time of Taylor's founding. Albert Franklin's grandfather, Jimmy Johannesson, was a train conductor back in the late 1800s. And though he never talked much about his work, his diary had some to tell.
1: Of course, uh, back then it was uh, steam locomotives, you know, kind of like the, uh, the ones in Back to the Future Part Three, where they, uh, they uh, go back in time to the Old West um they needed to uh get the delorean the the time machine up to uh, uh 88 miles per hour and uh, they tried horses didn't work and they tried you know had all sorts of little schemes that never panned out and then they they asked the train conductor like like my grandfather uh you know could they get up to 88 miles per hour which uh as you know. Um, trains need to go, or sorry, time machines need to go 88 miles per hour in order to uh, travel uh, back to the uh, Back to the Future. Well, that's what that's what they call the movie Back to the Future.
0: And, he uh, went and on for some time the, about uh, the uh, last Back to the Future was, movie, uh, you know, so we'll skip ahead to where he and, gets to the point.
1: Well, before Taylor, there was. Nothing between uh, Round Rock and Rockdale. And I, I, I mean nothing for like 45 miles. Uh, I- anyway, here, here's, here's what he wrote. And now we have entered the land between the rocks. I've ventured this line at least a dozen times. And it has never failed to provide an opportunity to dream of a more fulfilling life. Man, they used to write good uh, back then, I don't think our, our youngins can write like that anymore. You just look at their uh, their tweeters and their uh, TikToks there. I don't think there's, uh, uh, you know, they can't write like that. I mean, like a Facebook post, ain't no one that would uh, make a, a Facebook post that eloquent about, uh, you know, nothing.
0: I asked Jimmy if anything else was written about the land that would become Taylor. Reaching a dead end there, I was left with a mystery. Why would a town spring up in such a seemingly uninspiring location? I continued my search for accounts of Taylor's origins, and I was clued into another train-related source that could shed some light on why Taylor ended up where it did. It just so happened the answer was surprising and obvious all at once. It was the Ducks.
2: Well, my great-grandmother was on the first train to stop where where Taylor would be. Of course, what stopped it was a little hard to believe.
0: Tolorian Hannah Bohawk, born in 1945, had a great-grandmother that did talk a lot about how the family settled in Taylor and why. When I heard Hannah's great-grandmother's story... I did some research on the history of aquatic fowl in central Texas and her story, which I'll get to in a moment, makes perfect sense. It just so happened in May of 1875, a flock of some 10,000 ducks were found to have returned to one of their nesting grounds about 16 miles east of the Round Rock. The Ducks seasonally migrated to several specific locations in North America, but had not found their way back to the future Taylor area since before the railroad was built a few years prior.
2: There were 30 or 40 of them in the rail car, playing poker music and eating kolaches on their way from Austin to a Czech settlement in the east, when suddenly they felt the train coming to a stop. At first they feared it was, you know, bandits or or Indians, but looking out the windows, all they saw was ducks, thousands and thousands of them.
0: Indeed, it was ducks that stopped the train. Not out of any regard for their lives, no. In fact, they had tried to plow straight through them. But the ducks proved too powerful. More than 200 ducks were reportedly killed by the time the train stopped and its smokestack was clogged with duck. Well, smoked duck, in fact. While the passengers were inconvenienced by the five-hour delay, they did enjoy snacking on the smoked duck, samples of which were distributed to each railcar. To those on the railcar that carried Hannah's great-grandmother, it was a delightful accident for on that rail car was a contingent of Czech tailors who, by chance or fate, specialized in making garments out of duck feathers.
2: Since it was ducks they were used to working with back in Europe, they put it to a boat and decided to settle right then and there. Of course, it was a different kind of duck than back in Austria-Hungary, but they quickly adapted to using the local variety.
0: It was this spectacular coincidence that brought a town to life. But a group of tailors does not a town make. By the end of 1875, the Czech tailors had built several small shops, and though a station hadn't yet been built, the trains would faithfully stop to avoid having their smokestacks stuffed again with duck.
2: My grandmother was quite the looker back then. Her mama would dress her up in the finest duck-feathered dresses they would make. The boys would always buy one for the girls, and so they would buy themselves a matching vest to go with it. It was quite a little scheme they had going on.
0: Yes, indeed, people came from the north, south, east, and west to have their own duck-feathered garments fitted by the now famous duck tailors. While no samples survived to the present day, I found newspaper articles as far away as Waco featuring reviews of the garb. Once a station was built, the popularity continued and before long other retailers and businesses sprang up to take advantage. The Kalachi shop, a general store, and even the duck's back saloon were just some of the establishments that predated the town's official formation. The Czechs wouldn't stay the only tailors at the stop. German tailors who worked with cotton moved in and started growing their preferred medium, but we'll get more on that later. Forming an alliance of sorts, the two groups incorporated the town as Taylorsville.
3: Can you believe they misspelled it? Now, in their defense, they were not great English speakers, but come on, you're naming a town. Maybe get an English guy to look over it.
0: Kel Taylor, a self-proclaimed expert on the town, is a descendant of Zachary Taylor, a train conductor that regularly went through the area. He loved the duck stop, as he called it.
3: Yeah, they said Zach loved the duck feathered stuff that they made like crazy. He was a fun guy on the Taylors. Uh, well, they liked him too. He, he wore the stuff everywhere and brought in customers. They had a great relationship. So... He takes a few months off, and when he comes back through, he finds the place is now called Taylorsville. I mean, what was he supposed to think?
0: Yes, indeed, Zachary thought they had named the town after him. They had spelled it T-A-Y-L-O-R instead of T-A-I-L-O-R. When they saw how happy and grateful their great friend was at the unintended gesture, they didn't have the heart to tell him of their error. And in fact, the real intent of the name wouldn't be revealed until after Taylor's death, after the history books already reported him as the town's namesake. Today, it's considered an open secret among the conductor's descendants, but in fact, no one else I contacted throughout my research on Taylor were aware of the true origin of the town's name the name of the town was intended to draw business. After all, Actuaryland, New Hampshire had already become the life insurance capital of the nation. Why couldn't Taylorsville become the premier garment making center? Well, it turned out the misspelling doomed them. At least, that's what Kel thinks.
3: Yeah, so now people just think it's this town named after some train conductor named Taylor. How would anyone care about that? Totally defeated the purpose. And so businesses started to decline once the duck feather garment craze went out of fashion. I mean, how long could that have lasted? It's a shame, too. Who knows what the time might be like now, if they had just spelled it right.
0: Indeed, it wasn't long before the gimmick had run its course, and the tailors started to move on. The ducks would remain. But by 1910, the last tailor left Taylor. And based on my deep dive into the records at the Chamber of Commerce, there hasn't been one within the city limits since then. However, the legacy of the German tailors would leave its mark on the town as a new king was crowned, Cotton. This has been A Tale of Ducks and Cotton, Chapter 1, The Founding of Taylor. Special thanks to Albert Franklin, Hannah Bohawk, and Kel Taylor for their contributions, as well as the Chamber of Commerce, the Taylor Public Library, and the Taylor Historic League for use of their resources. Next chapter, The Rise and Fall of Cotton. This podcast is a work of fiction and is for entertainment purposes only. Any reference to actual people or places should be considered parody and or satire and is not intended to communicate any true or factual information about such people and places.